0: Section Twenty Five of Curiosities of Literature, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sonia. Curiosities of Literature, Volume Two by Isaac Disraeli. Poetical imitations and similarities. Tantus amor florum et generandi gloria melis georgica liber four verse two hundred and four such rage of honey in our bosom beats and such a zeal we have for flowery sweets dryden this article was commenced by me many years ago in the early volumes of the monthly magazine and continued by various correspondents with various success i have collected only those of my own contribution because i do not feel authorized to make use of those of other persons however some may be desirable one of the most elegant of literary recreations is that of tracing poetical or prose imitations and similarities for assuredly similarity is not always imitation bishop hurd's pleasing essay on the marks of imitation will assist the critic in deciding on what may only be an accidental similarity rather than a studied imitation those critics have indulged an intemperate abuse in these entertaining researches who from a single word derived the imitation of an entire passage wakefield in his edition of gray is very liable to this censure this kind of literary amusement is not despicable there are few men of letters who have not been in the habit of marking parallel passages or tracing imitation in the thousand shapes it assumes it forms it cultivates it delights taste to observe by what dexterity and variation genius conceals or modifies an original thought or image and to view the same sentiment or expression borrowed with art or heightened by embellishment the ingenious writer of a criticism on gray's allergy in continuation of dr johnson's has given some observation on this subject which will please it is often entertaining to trace imitation to detect the adopted image, the copied design, the transferred sentiment, the appropriate phrase, and even the acquired manner and frame under all the disguises that imitation, combination, and accommodation may have thrown around them must require both parts and diligence. But it will bring with it no ordinary gratification. A book professedly on the history and progress of imitation in poetry written by a man of perspicuity and adept in the art of discerning likenesses even when minute with examples properly selected and gradations duly marked would make an impartial accession to the store of human literature and furnish rational curiosity with a high regale let me premise that these notices the wrecks of a large collection of passages i had once formed merely as exercises to form my taste are not given with the petty malignant delight of detecting the unacknowledged imitations of our best writers but merely to habituate the young student to an instructive amusement and to exhibit that beautiful variety which the same image is capable of exhibiting when retouched with all the art of genius gray in his ode to spring has the attic warbler pours her throat wakefield in his commentary has a copious passage on this poetical diction he conceives it to be an admirable improvement of the Greek and Roman classics. Cain Auden. Hesiod, Scutum Herculis, three hundred ninety six. Suaves ex ore funde. Lucretius, one forty. This learned editor was little conversant with modern literature, as he proved by his memorable editions of Gray and Pope. The expression is evidently borrowed not from Hesiod nor from lucretius but from a brother at home is it for thee the linnet pours her throat essay on man epistola three verse thirty three gray in the ode to adversity addresses the power thus thou tamer of the human breast whose iron scourge and torturing hour the bad affright afflict the best wakefield censures the expression torturing hour by discovering an impropriety and incongruity he says consistency of figure rather required some material image like iron scourge and adamantine chain it is curious to observe a verbal critic lecture such a poet as gray the poet probably would never have replied or in a moment of excessive urbanity he might have condescended to point out to this minutest of critics the following passage in Milton: when the scourge inexorably and the torturing hour calls us to penance paradise lost b two verse ninety gray in his ode to adversity has light they disperse and with them go the summer friend fond of this image he has it again in his bard they swarm that in thy noontide beam are born gone perhaps the germ of this beautiful image may be found in shakespeare for men like butterflies show not their mealy wings but to the summer Troilus and cressida act three scene seven and two similar passages in timon of athens the swallow follows not summer more willingly than we your lordship timon no more willingly leaves winter such summer birds are men act three again in the same one cloud of winter showers these flies are couched act two gray in his progress of poetry has in climbs beyond the solar road wakefield has traced this imitation to dryden gray himself refers to virgil and petrarch wakefield gives the line from dryden thus beyond the year and out of heaven's highway which he calls extremely bold and poetical i confess a critic might be allowed to be somewhat fastidious in this unpoetical diction on the highway which i believe dryden never used i think his line was thus beyond the year out of the solar walk pope has expressed the image more elegantly though copied from dryden far as the solar walk or milky way gray has in his bard dear as the light that visits these sad eyes dear as the ruddy drops that warm my heart gray himself points out the imitation in shakespeare of the latter image but it is curious to observe that otway in his venice preserved makes priuli most pathetically exclaim to his daughter that she is dear as the vital warmth that feeds my life dear as these eyes that weep in fondness over thee gray tells us that the image of his bard loose his beard and hoary hair streamed like a meteor to the troubled air was taken from a picture of the supreme being by raphael it is however remarkable and somewhat ludicrous that the beard of hudibras is also compared to a meteor and the accompanying observation of butler almost induces one to think that gray derived from it the whole plan of that sublime ode since his bard precisely performs what the beard of hudibras denounced these are the verses this hairy meteor did denounce the fall of sceptres and of crowns hudibras canto i i have been asked if i am serious in my conjecture that the meteor beard of hudibras might have given birth to the bard of gray i reply that the burlesque and the sublime are extremes and extremes meet how often does it merely depend on our own state of mind and on our own taste to consider the sublime as burlesque a very vulgar but acute genius thomas paine whom we may suppose destitute of all delicacy and refinement has conveyed to us a notion of the sublime as it is probably experienced by ordinary and uncultivated minds, and even by acute and judicious ones who are destitute of imagination. He tells us that the sublime and the ridiculous are often so nearly related that it is difficult to class them separately. One step above the sublime makes the ridiculous, and one step above the ridiculous makes the sublime again. May I venture to illustrate this opinion, would it not appear the ridiculous or burlesque to describe the sublime revolution of the earth on her axle round the sun by comparing it with the action of a top flogged by a boy? And yet some of the most exquisite lines in Milton do this, the poet only alluding in his mind to the top, the earth he describes whether she from west her silent course advance with inoffensive pace that spinning sleeps on her soft axle while she paces even be this as it may it has never i believe been remarked to return to gray that when he conceived the idea of the beard of his bard he had in his mind the language of milton who describes a zazel sublimely unfurling the imperial ensign which full high advanced shone like a meteor streaming to the wind paradise lost b one verse five hundred thirty five very similar to gray's streamed like a meteor to the troubled air gray has been severely censured by johnson for the expression give ample room and verge enough the characters of hell to trace the bart on the authority of the most unpoetical of critics we must still hear that the poet has no line so bad ample room is feeble but would have passed unobserved in any other poem but in the poetry of gray who has taught us to admit nothing but what is exquisite verge enough is poetical since it conveys a material image to the imagination no one appears to have detected the source from whence probably the whole line was derived i am inclined to think it was from the following passage in dryden let fortune empty her whole quiver on me i have a soul that like an ample shield can take in all and verge enough for more dryden's don sebastian gray in his elegy has even in our ashes live their wonted fires this line is so obscure that it is difficult to apply it to what precedes it mason in his edition, in vain attempts to derive it from a thought of petrarch and still more vainly attempts to amend it wakefield expends an octavo page to paraphrase this single verse from the following lines of chaucer one would imagine gray caught the recollected idea the old reeve in his prologue says of himself and of old men for one we may not doan done wal with bacon yet in our ashen cold is fire turwitz chaucer volume one page one hundred fifty three verse three thousand eight hundred seventy nine gray has a very expressive word highly poetical but i think not common for who to dumb forgetfulness a prey Daniel has, as quoted in Cooper's Muses library, and in himself with sorrow does complain the misery of dark forgetfulness. A line of popes, in his dunciad high-born Howard, echoed in the ear of Gray, when he gave with all the artifice of alliteration, high-born Howell's harp. Johnson bitterly censures Gray for giving to adjectives the termination of participles, such as the cultured plain, the daisied bank but he solemnly adds i was sorry to see in the line of a scholar like gray the honeyed spring had johnson received but the faintest tincture of the rich italian school of english poetry he would never have formed so tasteless a criticism honeyed is employed by milton in more places than one hide me from day's garish eye while the bee with honeyed thigh penceroso verse 142 the celebrated stanza in Gray's elegy seems partly to be borrowed full many a gem of purest ray serene the dark unfathomed eaves of ocean bare full many a flower is torn to blush unseen and waste its sweetness in the desert air pope had said they're kept by charms concealed from mortal eye like roses that in deserts bloom and die rape of the lock young says of nature in distant wilds by human eye unseen, she rears her flowers and spreads her velvet green. Pure gurgling rills the lonely desert trace and waste their music on the savage race. And Shenstone has, and like the desert's lily bloom to fade. Elegy four. Gray was so fond of this pleasing imagery that he repeats it in his ode to the installation, and Mason echoes it in his ode to memory milton thus paints the evening sun if chance the radiant sun with farewell sweet extends his evening beam the fields revive the birds their notes renew etc paradise lost b two verse four hundred ninety two can there be a doubt that he borrowed this beautiful farewell from an obscure poet quoted by poole in his english parnassus sixteen fifty seven the date of milton's great work i find since admits the conjecture the first edition being that of 1669, the homely lines in pool are these. To Thetis watery bowers the sun doth high, bidding farewell unto the gloomy sky. Young in his love of fame very adroitly improves on a witty conceit of butler. It is curious to observe that while butler had made a remote allusion of a window to a pillory, a conceit is grafted on this conceit with even more exquisite wit each window like the pillory appears with heads thrust through nailed by the ears hudibras part two canto three verse three hundred and one an opera like a pillory may be said to nail our ears down and expose our head young's satires in the duenna we find this thought differently illustrated by no means imitative though the satire is congenial Don jerome alluding to the serenaders says these amorous orgies that steal the senses in the hearing as they say egyptian embalmers serve mummies extracting the brain through the ears the wit is original but the subject is the same in three passages the whole turning on the allusion to the head and to the ears when pope composed the following lines on fame how vain that second life in others breath the estate which wits inherit after death ease health and life for this they must resign unsure the tenure but how vast the fine temple of fame he seems to have had present in his mind a single idea of butler by which he has very richly amplified the entire imagery butler says Honor's a lease for lives to come and cannot be extended from the legal tenant Hudibras, part one, canto three, verse thousand forty three. The same thought may be found in Sir George Mackenzie's essay on preferring solitude to public employment, first published in sixteen sixty five. Hudibras preceded it by two years. The thought is strongly expressed by the eloquent Mackenzie. Fame is a revenue payable only to our ghosts, and to deny ourselves all present satisfaction or to expose ourselves to so much hazard for this were as great madness as to starve ourselves or fight desperately for food to be laid on our tombs after our death dryden in his absalom and the says of the earl of shaftesbury david for him his tuneful harp had strung and heaven had wanted one immortal song this verse was ringing in the ear of pope when with equal modesty and felicity he adopted it in addressing his friend dr arbuthnot friend of my life which did not you prolong the world had wanted many an idle song howell has prefixed to his letters a tedious poem written in the taste of the times and he there says of letters that they are the heralds and sweet harbingers that move from east to west on embassies of love they can the tropic cut and cross the line it is probable that pope had noted this thought for the following lines seem a beautiful heightening of the idea heaven first taught letters for some wretch's aid some banished lover or some captive maid then he adds they speed the soft intercourse from soul to soul and waft a sigh from indus to the pole eloisa there is another passage in howell's letters which has a great affinity with the thought of pope who in the rape of the locks says fair tresses man's imperial race and snare and beauty draws us with a single hair howell writes page two hundred and ninety tis a powerful sex they were too strong for the first the strongest and the wisest man that was they must needs be strong when one hair of a woman can draw more than a hundred pair of oxen pope's description of the death of the lamb in his essay on man, is finished with the nicest touches and is one of the finest pictures our poetry exhibits even familiar as it is to our ear we never examine it but with undiminished admiration the lamb thy riot dooms to bleed to-day had he thy reason would he skip and play pleased to the last he crops the flowery food and licks the hand just raised to shed his blood after pausing on the last two fine verses, will not the reader smile that I should conjecture the image might originally have been discovered in the following humble verses in a poem once considered not as contemptible? A gentle lamb has rhetoric to plead, and when she sees the butcher's knife decreed, her voice entreats him not to make her bleed. Dr. King's Mully of Mount Town. This natural and affecting image might certainly have been observed by Pope without his having perceived it through the less polished lens of the telescope of dr king it is however a similarity though it may not be in an imitation and is given as an example of that art in composition which can ornament the humblest conception like the graceful vest thrown over naked and sordid beggary i consider the following lines as strictly copied by thomas wharton the daring artist explored the pangs that rent the royal breast those wounds that lurk beneath the tissued vest thomas wharton on shakespeare sir philip sidney in his defence of poesy has the same image he writes tragedy openeth the greatest wounds and showeth forth the ulcers that are covered with tissue the same appropriation of thought will attach to the following lines of tickle while the charmed reader with thy thought complies and views thy rosamond with henry's eyes tickle to addison evidently from the french horace en vain contre les sites un ministre se ligue tout paris pour chimene a les yeux de rodrigue Boileau, oldham the satirist says in his satires upon the jesuits that had cain been of this black fraternity he had not been content with a quarter of mankind had he been jesuit had he but put on their savage cruelty the rest had gone satire too doubtless at that moment echoed in his poetical ear the energetic and caustic epigram of andrew Marvel against blood stealing the crown dressed in a parson's cassock and sparing the life of the keeper with the priest's vestment had he but put on the prelate's cruelty the crown had gone the following passages seem echoes to each other and it is but justice due to oldham the satirist to acknowledge him as the parent of this antithesis on butler who can think without just rage the glory and the scandal of the age satire against poetry it seems evidently borrowed by pope when he applies the thought to erasmus at length erasmus the great injured name the glory of the priesthood and the shame young remembered the antithesis when he said of some for glory such the boundless rage that they're the blackest scandal of the age voltaire a great reader of pope seems to have borrowed part of the expression scandale d'eglise et des rois le modèle decot an old french poet in one of his moral poems on an hour-glass inserted in modern collections has many ingenious thoughts that this poem was read and admired by goldsmith the following beautiful image seems to indicate decaud co, comparing the world to his hour-glass says beautifully c'est un verre qui lui qu'un souffle peut détruire et qu'un souffle a produit goldsmith applies the thought very happily princes and lords may flourish or may fade a breath can make them as a breath has made i do not know whether we might not read for modern copies are sometimes incorrect a breath unmakes them as a breath has made thompson in his pastoral story of palamon and lavinia appears to have copied a passage from otway palamon thus addresses lavinia oh let me now into a richer soil transplant thee safe where vernal suns and showers diffuse their warmest largest influence and of my garden be the pride and joy chamon employs the same image when speaking of monimia he says you took her up a little tender flower and with a careful loving hand transplanted her into your own fair garden where the sun always shines the origin of the following imagery is undoubtedly grecian but it is still embellished and modified by our best poets while universal pen knit with the graces and the hours in dance led on the eternal spring paradise lost thompson probably caught this strain of imagery sudden to heaven thence weary vision turns where leading soft the silent hours of love with purest ray sweet venus shines summer verse one thousand six hundred ninety two gray in repeating this imagery has borrowed a remarkable epithet from milton lo where the rosy bosomed hours fair venus train appear ode to spring along the crisped shades and bowers revels the spruce and jocund spring the graces and the rosy bosomed hours thither all their bounties bring comus verse nine hundred eighty four collins in his ode to fear whom he associates with danger there grandly personified was i think considerably indebted to the following stanza of Spenser. next him was fear all armed from top to toe yet thought himself not safe enough thereby but feared each sudden movement to and fro and his own arms when glittering he did spy or clashing heard, he fast away did fly as ashes pale of hue and wingy-heeled and evermore on danger fixed his eye, gainst whom he always bent the brazen shield, which his right hand unarmed fearfully did wield. Fairy Queen B three Canto twelve stanza twelve, warm from its perusal, he seems to have seized it as a hint to the ode to fear, and in his passions to have very finely copied an idea here. First fear, his hand, his skill to try amid the coarse bewildered laid and back recoiled he knew not why even at the sound himself had made o oh, to the passions the stanza in Beattie's minstrel first book in which his visionary boy after the storm of summer rain views the rainbow brightened to the setting sun and runs to reach it fond fool that deems the streaming glory nigh how vain the chase thine ardour has begun this fled afar ere half thy purposed race be run thus it fares with age etc the same train of thought and imagery applied to the same subject though the image itself be somewhat different may be found in the poems of the platonic john norris a writer who has great originality of thought and a highly poetical spirit his stanza runs thus so to the unthinking boy the distant sky seems on some mountain's surface to rely he with ambitious haste climbs the ascent curious to touch the firmament but when with an unwearied pace he is arrived at the long-wished for place with sighs the sad defeat he does deplore his heaven is still as distant as before the Infidel by john norris in the modern tragedy of the castle spectre is this fine description of the ghost of evelina suddenly a female form glided along the vault i flew towards her my arms were already unclosed to clasp her when suddenly her figure changed her face grew pale a stream of blood gushed from her bosom while speaking her form withered away the flesh fell from her bones a skeleton loathsome and meagre clasped me in her mouldering arms her infected breath was mingled with mine her rotting fingers pressed my hand and my face was covered with her kisses. Oh, then, how I trembled with disgust. There is undoubtedly singular merit in this description. I shall contrast it with one which the French Virgil has written in an age whose faith was stronger in ghosts than ours, yet which perhaps had less skill in describing them. There are some circumstances which seem to indicate that the author of the castle spectre lighted his torch at the altar of the French muse. Athalia thus narrates her dream in which the spectre of Jezebel her mother appears c'est toi pendant l'horreur d'une profonde nuit ma mère Jezabel devant moi s'est montrée comme au jour de sa mort pompeusement parée en achevant ces mots épouvantables son ombre vers mon lit apparut se baisser et moi je lis ton doigt les mains pour l'embrasser mais je n'ai plus trouvé qu'un horrible mélange d'eau et de chair meurtrie et traînés dans la fange des lambeaux pleins de sang et des membres affreux racines Act at two scene Five. goldsmith when in his pedestrian tour he sat amidst the alps as he paints himself in his traveller and felt himself the solitary neglected genius he was desolate amidst the surrounding scenery probably at that moment applied to himself the following beautiful imagery of Thomson as in the hollow breast of apennine beneath the centre of encircling hills a myrtle rises far from human eyes and breathes its balmy fragrance over the wild autumn verse two hundred and two goldsmith very pathetically applies a similar image even now when alpine solitudes ascend i sit me down a pensive hour to spend like yon neglected shrub at random cast that shades the steep and sighs at every blast traveler akenside illustrates the native impulse of genius by a simile of memnon's marble statue sounding its lyre at the touch of the sun for as old memnon's image long renowned by fabling nihilus to the quivering touch of titan's ray with each repulsive string consenting sounded through the warbling air unbidden strains even so did nature's hand etc it is remarkable that the same image which does not appear obvious enough to have been the common inheritance of poets is precisely used by oldrigny the first french satirist in the dedication of his satires to the french king louis xiv supplies the place of nature to the courtly satirist these are his words on lit qu'en Ethiop, il y a voit une statue qui rendoit un son harmonieux toutes les fois que le <inaudible> soleil levant la regardoit ce même miracle sire avez-vous fait en moi qui touché de l'astre de votre majesté ai reçu la voix et la parole in that sublime passage in pope's essay on man epistola i verse two hundred thirty seven beginning vast chain of being which from god began and proceeds to from nature's chain whatever link you strike tenth or ten thousands, breaks the chain alike Pope seems to have caught the idea and image from waller whose last verse is as fine as any in the essay on man the chain that's fixed to the throne of jove on which the fabric of our world depends one link dissolved the whole creation ends of the danger his majesty escaped etc verse one hundred sixty eight it has been observed by Thayer that milton borrowed the expression imbrowned and brown which he applies to the evening shade from the italian see thier's elegant note in b four verse two hundred forty six and where the unpierced shade imbrowned the noontide bowers and B. nine verse thousand eighty six where highest woods impenetrable to sun or starlight spread their umbrage broad and brown as evening Falimbruno is an expression used by the Italians to denote the approach of the evening. Boiardo, Ariosto, and Tasso have made a very picturesque use of this term, noticed by Thayer. I doubt if it be applicable to our colder climate, but thompson appears to have been struck by the fine effect it produces in poetical landscape, for he has with quickened step, brown night retires. Summer, verse fifty one. If the epithet be true, it cannot be more appropriately applied than in the season he describes, which most resembles the genial clime with the deep serenity of an Italian heaven. Milton in Italy had experienced the brown evening, but it may be suspected that Thompson only recollected the language of the poet. The same observation may be made on two other poetical epithets. I shall notice the epithet laughing applied to inanimate objects and purple to beautiful objects. The natives of Italy and the softer climates receive emotions from the views of their waters in the spring not equally experienced in the British roughness of our skies. The fluency and softness of the water are thus described by Lucretius. Tibi Suavis daida la tellus, submitted flores. Tibi rident, Iquora ponti. Inelegantly rendered by Creech. The roughest sea puts on smooth looks and smiles dryden more happily the ocean smiles and smooths her wavy breast but metastasio has copied lucretius a te fioriscono erbosi prat e i flutti ridono nel mar placati. it merits observation that the northern poets could not exalt their imagination higher than that the water smiled while the modern italian having before his eyes a different spring found no difficulty in agreeing with the ancients that the waves laughed modern poetry has made a very free use of the animating epithet laughing gray has laughing flowers and langhorne in two beautiful lines personifies flora where tweed's soft banks in liberal beauty lie and flora laughs beneath an azure sky sir william jones in the spirit of oriental poetry has the laughing air dryden has employed this epithet boldly in the delightful lines Almost entirely borrowed from his original, Chaucer. The morning lark, the messenger of day, Saluted in her song the morning gray, And soon the sun arose, with beams so bright, That all the horizon laughed to see the joyous sight. Palamon and Arcite, B. Two. Footnote. The old poet is the most fresh and powerful in his words. The passage is thus given in Wright's edition The busy lark messenger of day saluteth in her song the morrow gray and fiery phoebus rises up so bright that all the orient laugheth of the light leigh hunt remarks with justice that dryden falls short of the freshness and feeling of the sentiment his lines are beautiful but they do not come home to us with so happy and cordial a face and a footnote it is extremely difficult to conceive what the ancients precisely meant by the word purpureus they seem to have designed by it anything bright and beautiful a classical friend has furnished me with numerous significations of this word which are very contradictory albinovanus in his elegy on livia mentions nivem purpureum Catullus, quercus ramus purpureus horus purpureo bibet ore nectar and somewhere mentions olores purpureos virgil has purpuream vomit ileanimam and homer calls the sea purple and gives it in some other book the same epithet when in a storm the general idea however has been fondly adopted by the finest writers in europe the purple of the ancients is not known to us what idea therefore have the moderns affixed to it Edison, in his vision of the temple of fame describes the country as being covered with a kind of purple light gray's beautiful line is well known the bloom of young desire and purple light of love and tasso in describing his hero godfrey says heaven Liempie empie la faccia e viriduce di giovinezza il bel purpureo lume both gray and tasso copied virgil where venus gives to her son ineas lumen Juventai juventae purpureum dryden has omitted the purple light in his version nor is it given by pitt but dryden expresses the general idea by with hands divine had formed his curling locks and made his temples shine and given his rolling eyes a sparkling grace it is probable that milton has given us his idea of what was meant by this purple light when applied to the human countenance in the felicitous expression of celestial rosy red gray appears to me to be indebted to milton for a hint for the opening of his elegy as in the first line he had dante and milton in his mind he perhaps might also in the following passage have recollected a congenial one in comus which he altered milton describing the evening marks it out by what time the labored ox in his loose traces from the furrow came and the swinged hedger at his supper set gray has the lowing herd wind slowly over the lea the ploughman homeward plods his weary way wharton has made an observation on this passage in comus and observes further that it is a classical circumstance but not a natural one in an english landscape for our ploughmen quit their work at noon i think therefore the imitation is still more evident and as wharton observes both gray and milton copied here from books and not from life there are three great poets who have given us a similar incident dryden introduces the highly finished picture of the hare in his annus mirabilis stanza one hundred thirty one so i have seen some fearful hare maintain a course till tired before the dog she lay who stretched behind her pants upon the plain past power to kill as she to get away one hundred thirty two with his lolled tongue he faintly licks his prey his warm breath blows her flicks up as she lies she trembling creeps upon the ground away and looks back to him with beseeching eyes thompson paints the stag in a similar situation fainting breathless toil sick seizes on his heart he stands at bay the big round tears run down his dappled face he groans in anguish autumn verse 451 shakespeare exhibits the same object the wretched animal heaved forth such groans that their discharge did stretch his leathern coat almost to bursting and the big round tears coursed one another down his innocent nose in piteous chase of these three pictures the beseeching eyes of dryden perhaps is more pathetic than the big round tears certainly borrowed by thompson from shakespeare because the former expression has more passion and is therefore more poetical the sixth line in dryden is perhaps exquisite for its imitative harmony and with peculiar felicity paints the action itself thompson adroitly drops the innocent nose of which one word seems to have lost its original signification and the other offends now by its familiarity the dappled face is a term more picturesque more appropriate and more poetically expressed end of section twenty six